get to be taught on their level there. So we're going to turn to Judges chapter 16 while they're dismissing. Judges chapter 16 is where we're at. Back in the book of Judges today, uh, Bill Gates, not a fan, I'm just going to give you a quote he made. Just in terms of allocation, he says, of time resources, religion is not very efficient. He said, there's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. I, for one, am glad that you allocated your time to be here this morning. And by the way, I don't think there is a lot better that you could be doing on a Sunday morning. I think God's house is where you ought to be. And I think if you want to be blessed spiritually at all in your life, you'll, that's where you'll find yourself. One lady said, I haven't gone to church in a long time. Besides, I think it's too late anyway. I've probably broken all seven commandments already. Uh, you should probably go to church and learn those type of things anyway. Uh, we're back in the book of Judges, and it's no surprise that we find Israel in trouble again. Uh, they have had this up and down roller coaster life as we're working through the book of Judges. They get in trouble, they cry out to God, God delivers them, and then they get in trouble again. Uh, it all begins our story that we're talking about today in chapter 13, where they did evil again in the sight of God. So God did what God does. He allowed them to reap what they sow. By the way, God does the same thing for us. We will also reap whatever we sow. Not only do we reap more uh, what we sow, but we reap more bountifully than what we sow. And so God allowed them to do that as Hosea later said, for they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The Philistines this time were their oppressors. They had been for about 40 years. The scene seems set for someone, a great leader or a great judge uh, perhaps the greatest of all, to come on the scene and lead them out of oppression. As we read in chapter 13, it looks like our assumption is correct because we're introduced to a man named Manoah and his wife. Now, she's not named, but an angel came to her, and she, she by the way, was barren, could not have children. An angel came to her and said that she's going to have a son, and he's going to be a Nazarite, a special child. Uh, uh, Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, and it simply means to be separated or to be consecrated. This vow uh, required the person to observe a couple of different things that were abnormal from that time. He was to abstain from anything made from the grape plant. So grape juice, wine, raisins, grape seed oil, and the list was on down the line. He had to stay away from. No, next, the Nazarite was not to cut his hair for the length of his vow, which Samson's was the length of his life. And so he was never to cut his hair. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, the Bible says, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame to him? But a Nazarite was going to bear this shame, and he was going to do it because he had consecrated himself to the Lord. A final thing the Nazarite was not to do was ever to touch a dead body or the unclean. Uh, he was supposed to stay away from that completely. All this leads us to expect an amazing deliverer. Haven't we seen some already? I mean, the woman who uh, drove a nail through that man's head. Uh, we saw the man who, who uh, uh, Ehud, who plunged a knife into a man so fat the knife disappeared. And we, heard, we read that story. We've seen some great deliverers already. Now we expect the greatest of them all. And uh, we find the most flawed character in the book of Judges. Samson is a violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, uh, emotionally immature, and selfish man. Uh, he is, despite all his issues, though, God uses him in a mighty way. 
Samson is who we're going to look at this morning. If you've got your Bibles open, chapter 16, verse number 6. And Delilah said to Samson, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength lieth, and wherewith thou mightest be bound to afflict thee. And Samson said unto her, If they bind me with seven green widths that were never dried, then shall I be weak and be as another man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven green widths which had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now there were men lying in wait, abiding with her in the chamber, and she said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he brake the widths as a thread of tow is broken when it touches the fire, so his strength was not known. And Delilah said unto Samson, Behold, thou hast mocked me and told me lies. Now tell me, I pray thee, wherewith thou mightest not be bound? And he said unto her, If they bind me fast with new ropes that were never occupied, then shall I be weak and be as another man. Delilah therefore took new ropes and bound him therewith. You see any, any patterns here yet developing? De uh, bound him therewith and said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson, and there were liars in wait abiding in the chamber, and he brake them off his arms like thread. And Delilah said, to, Delilah said to Samson, Hitherto thou hast mocked me and told me lies. Tell me whether with thou must be bound. And he said unto her, If thou weavest the seven locks of my head with the web. And she fastened it with a pin and said unto him, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he wakened out of his sleep and went away uh, the pin of the beam and with the web. And she said unto him, How canst thou say thou lovest me? Are you serious? After what she's doing? How can you say, I love thee, and thine heart is not with me? Thou hast mocked me these three times. Thou hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death. Look at verse 19. And she made him sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man. And she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. I should have read 17 too. Let's go back to that. Then he told her all his heart and said unto her, Thou hath not, there hath not come a razor upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And that's when Delilah did that. Uh, and uh, verse 20, she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. Wake out of his sleep, and he said, I will go out as other times before and shake myself. Wist not that the Lord was departed from him. Father, I pray you'd help us today as we look at this message and how it can apply to us. May you use it to work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The secret to our power is what I want to talk about this morning, the secret to our power. The story of Samson begins in chapter 14 when he goes to Timnath one day and he sees a girl. And we're going to turn back a few pages. We'll just touch on a few highlights. But chapter 14, verse 2, uh, we, he sees a girl there in Timnath in verse 2, and he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman of Timnath, the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me to wife. Nice kid, isn't he? Real respectful to his parents. You can glean from this that he's already a selfish, demanding young man. Uh, this is the first time of many that we see him stirred by worldly impulses and selfish desires his parents, no doubt, remember what the angel had said to his mother when she said he's going to begin to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. Now imagine their dismay when he comes home and says, I don't want to deliver you, I want to marry one of them. That changed around a little bit. Not what they expected. And so they protest. They said this, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all thy people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistine? The word uncircumcised is key here because that's a sign of their covenant relationship with God. This is The issue here is not a, ra a racial issue. 
No daughter of mine is ever going to marry a Philistine. That's not it at all. They didn't want him to marry outside the covenant, uh, outside of the Lord's covenant. But Samson will not listen. He says again, get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. Doesn't that sound like what we've been talking about the time of the judges, the last verse in Judges? In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Samson's just doing what they're doing. And uh, he said, it pleaseth me well. So he is reflecting Israel's spiritual state rather than God's ideal for his people. First, Samson is impulsive. He's completely a sensual man, which means his senses control him. He sees, he wants, he takes. He, is a, he has a life that is characterized by a total lack of self-control. Second, he is unteachable. He's dismissive of authority. And that is always a sign of how a person really is when they dismiss the authority in their life. So we can already see that Samson is not going to be the judge that we're hoping for here. Uh, in fact, uh, you, when you read the position that the children of Israel are in, uh, we saw that last time we talked in Judges about Gideon, uh, the place they were in and then how God rose up Gideon. But now we see Samson's not going to be uh, fulfill our hopes. The very first judge, Othniel, he fought Israel's enemies and then married Askah, a godly Israelite. The last judge, Samson, he goes to Israel's enemies to find his wife. Totally different, and he's moving much further down than uh, he should have. In chapters 13 and 14, we see that the Philistines were settled in and living among the Israelites. They were the rulers over Israel, yet they were, uh, they were, their occupation seems pretty peaceful. Samson thought nothing of marrying one of them. This shows us something very serious that is missing in this judge's cycle that we've been talking about. Every time we've looked at them uh, when they're serving God, God delivers them and then they go to idols and they become oppressed by their enemies and then they cry out to God for deliverance but not here. You read chapter 13, 14, and 15, you never see them crying out to God for deliverance. This is worse than ever. If you are under oppression and you, don't, and you accept it and you just uh, take it as a matter of course, you never see them crying out for rescue. In chapter 15, verse 11, the men of Judah... Uh, simply face the fact that the Philistines are rulers over us. Judah, these are the men that were the first out to fight in chapter 1, verse 2. These are the ones that were protecting Israel. Now they're just ready to accept it. Israel is in serious trouble. Their submission to the Philistines is far more complete than any of their previous enslavements. Now we've seen prior to this that Israel would cry out to God for deliverance from oppression, but now they seem virtually unconscious of their enslavement. And I'll tell you one reason why. Because this, its nature this time is not military, it is not political as it's been before, this time it's one of cultural adaption. The Israelites do not fight their captors now. They have simply completely adopted their values, they've adopted the morals and the idols of the Philistines. Like Samson, the Israelites are probably eager to marry into the Philistine families and, and uh, enhance their place in society that way. We cannot overstate, friends, the danger to Israel right here. They are at the brink of extinction in, a, in no more than a generation. They could have been completely assimilated into the Philistine nation. And Israel was not like the rest of the world. Israel was God's people. Israel was a peculiar nation. They were a special people. They were a set-apart people. And what a tragedy here as they're being molded and assimilated into the world. 
Their strength was in their uniqueness. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. The same is true for a church. Many find themselves, many churches today find themselves right where the Israelites are. One preacher put it this way, if you put the world and the church in a bag and shake it up and pour it out, it's hard to tell who's who anymore. Because there's not much difference, there's not much uniqueness uh, between Christians and the world. Uh, Matthew Wilcox said this, or Michael Wilcox said this, there is no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world for the, where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. So when there is no conflict between the world and the church, when we are simply sitting here and accepting what's come in, that is because the world has taken over the church. And what does God do when God's people are accommodating and assimilating into the world? Well, we find the answer in chapter 14, verse 4. He seeks to find someone to drive a wedge in between his people and the world. And that's what he did with Samson. He wanted to create a distinction between the two again. God will use the weakness of Samson, his sexual appetite, his vindictiveness, his temper, to bring conflict between the two nations. God's people, they must not, then and today, they must not lose their distinctiveness. We are to be different than the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if, the love of the, if a man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We are to be different. And uh, God uses man's sinfulness to bring about uh, his deliverance. It's, it's interesting that, uh, that the, it's actually God's mercy that he is uh, not allowing them to continue in the way that they are. It is the mercy of God that he will not allow the world to love the church for too long. It forces his people to recognize that we aren't a part of the world and we are to be different. And then we finally cry out to him to rescue us from ourselves and despite ourselves and we turn back to him. That's the way it ought to be. Now early on, back to Samson, he starts to disdain his Nazarite vow. He starts to do things that show his lack of commitment. Let's look at just several of his escapades. I'm going to jump back and forth because we're all working up to a point here. Uh, we see the, issue, the, the scene with the lion. He goes to visit this girl in Timnath that he's interested in, and a young lion attacks him. With his bare hands, his bare hands, he takes this lion and rips him apart and kills him with his bare hands. That's what the Bible tells us. Uh, a few years ago, uh, when I was a teenager, I was in the woodshed. I wasn't dragged there. I was there by my own accord. Uh, but I was in the woodshed, and I came face-to-face uh, -face with a possum. hate possums. Things sitting there hissing at me. I, in Missouri, we had, we had a lot of possums, and I couldn't stand those animals. Uh, I wouldn't t attack a possum with my bare hands. He attacked a lion with his bare hands and tore him up. Now, he goes back a few months later to visit this girl again, and now this lion is laying there, his carcass has dried out, and a bunch of bees have made a hive in there, and they actually have honey in the carcass, and Samson says, ha, road snack. And he reaches in there, and he grabs some honey, and he has some honey on his way, on his journey there. He's not supposed to touch a dead body, though. And then there was the bet. During his wedding celebration, he offers his guests 30 sets of clothes if they can answer a riddle. And uh, guests are stumped, and so they uh, resort to going to his new wife to try to find out what she knows, and she finds the answer and passes it on to them. Samson feels tricked. He lost his temper, and he killed 30 Philistines to provide the 30 sets of clothing that he had promised if the answer is riddled. 
Now, he's mad at the Philistines. He's mad at his wife because she told. And he says, I'm going back home. And he goes back home. And uh, when he goes home, his wife's father gives her to somebody else to be his wife. Samson's gone. So now, I guess you can marry Chuck, you know, and hands him on to somebody else. Different society than what we're used to. Now, Samson gets home, and after a while, he feels bad. And he says, I got to, you know, I got my wife here. just married her. I guess I should get over my temper. And he decides to go back. Some guys will... Uh, buy a bouquet of flowers uh, when they mess up and they'll try to appease the wife. Sam's a little different. He takes a goat. I don't know. Maybe this will work for you if you want to do that instead of flowers sometime. But Samson gets a goat and he heads back to his wife and uh, to make up with her. And when he gets back, his father-in-law meets him at the door and says, man, I thought you were mad at her. I gave her to somebody else to be somebody else's wife. But then this is what this father says. Get this. He says, I'll give you her younger sister. And she's a lot better looking than the older one was. That's what the father said. Nice dad, isn't it? Chapter 15, verse 2. It's right in your Bible there. So Samson loses his temper again. And he says, I'll show him. He goes out and uh, look at what he does in chapter 15, verse 4. And Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took firebrands and turned tail to tail, put a firebrand in the midst between the two tails. Now sometimes people will just pass on right over that, Brother John, you're an outdoorsman, but uh, have you ever caught one fox? That's, that's not a, that's, that's an achievement right there. Okay, we, have a, we had a Bible Baptist church fox. He's since quit our church and went somewhere else, liberal. Uh, used to be up front here all the time, and, but now he's, I don't know if he, uh, what he, what's happened to him, but he no longer comes to our church. That happens once in a while. Uh, but I'd see him running across the field out there. Uh, foxes are hard to catch. He catches 300 of them. Ties their tails together, puts a torch between them, lights it up, and sends them through the cornfields and burns down the crops of all these people he's angry at. Well, so they retaliate. They burn his wife and family, and then he kills a bunch more of them. They now gather an army, and they pitch in Judah, and they come to the men of Judah. And this is what's so shocking. They come to Judah and say, hey, we're after Samson. That's all we want. We'll leave you alone, but we want Samson. And so Judah comes to Samson and says, what's going on, Samson? And he says, well, what they did to me, I did to them. I'm just retaliating. Judah is so desperate to remain at peace with the Philistines, God's people wanting to remain at peace with the world, that they'd rather cut down their own rescuer than to risk confrontation with the world. So they tie up their own judge and they give him over to the Philistines. Well, they're heading back, and Samson, of course, he's now tied up. That doesn't matter. He goes, and he rips everything free, and he picks up the jawbone of a dead donkey. I guess the donkey's dead. It's a jawbone. He picks up the jawbone of a donkey off the side of the road, and he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone. Amazing things that he is accomplishing here. Now, a couple of things. Foxes are unclean animals. He shouldn't have touched them. He should not have taken honey out of the lion's carcass. Uh, he should have went to the priest immediately after uh, he killed the lion because when the lion's dead, he's dead, so he had touched the dead body there too. And he shouldn't have touched the jawbone because guess what a jawbone comes from? A dead animal, unless he got a really upset animal. Uh, that was dead too. He despised, he's com- continually despising his Nazarite vow. Now the men of Gaza, they hear that Samson is visiting a harlot in the city. So they all gather together in ambush. They go to the gates of the city. They uh, presumably are right outside the city there. They say, Samson's visiting, visiting this harlot. 
and uh, in the morning when he starts to go, goes to go home, we're going to capture him and we're going to kill him. And so uh, they all camp out there. He's going to come in the morning. Everybody gets some sleep. We'll wake up early and we'll be ready for him. Only Samson doesn't wait till the morning. He leaves at midnight. And these men that are sleeping there, waiting for him to leave and waiting to trap him, they wake up, hear a noise, look up out of their sleeping bags, and there they see Samson. He's at the city gates. He's got a hold of the posts that hold the gates. He takes them out of the ground, throws them over his shoulder, and carries them 35 miles up to uh, the mountain that he's going to there, Hebron. Now, the city gates are approximately 60 feet high. Archaeological evidence uh, tells us that they were made from parallel pairs of great stone blocks. The posts and bar would probably have been solid cedar. We're talking tons of weight that he took. And I see it, when I see the story in my mind, he's whistling as he does this. Not a big deal. Uh, the guys are watching, and he takes these gates, puts them on his shoulder, travels 35 miles uphill all the way like your parents when they went to school. He's going up here all the way, taking those gates up to the Mount Hebron. Every one of those men that were watching felt led of the Spirit to go on home. I think you would too, wouldn't you? Samson had some, did some amazing, amazing things, and all these things God was at work. How could Samson kill the lion? Chapter 14, verse 6 tells us, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. How is he able to kill 30 Philistines and steal their clothes? tells us in chapter 14, verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. How could Samson kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey? The Bible tells us in chapter 15, verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. God is giving Samson superhuman strength, what he needs to cause division between the Israelites and the Philistines, which God's people, though they don't realize it, desperately need someone to cause a division, to create a line between the two. God is starting to save his people by divorcing them from the world around them. But it raises a question, as it does with all these people, how can God use such flawed people as Samson? Shouldn't God use people that are good, godly men and women? Shouldn't God use people that are, have the right beliefs and the right behavior? Well, stay with me on this. The problem with this is, or that view, is that then God would be limited by human behavior. And he is not. Uh, it would mean that God will only work in response to our good works. And he does not. He would be waiting for people to help him save, which is never the case. He, if deliverance depended on us, deliverance would never happen. Ever, ever, my friend. It's only God and God alone. Then the other question. If Samson has God's spirit on him, should not we see some growing in holiness? How can he be so over or so empowered by the Spirit and yet show no humility, show no patience, show no self-control? And the answer is in the Bible as well. The Bible has a distinction that, uh, that makes a distinction that many believers miss as they read the Bible. I want to share that with you today that I think would be a help. It is absolutely possible to have the gifts of the Spirit yet lack the fruit of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul tells us about the gifts of the Spirit. They're for doing, he said. Uh, they're the abilities we have for serving and aiding others. But in Galatians 5, 23, Paul tells us about the fruit of the Spirit, and that is our not doing, but our being, our character, what we are. 
Then in 1 Corinthians 13, if you read those few, few verses of the chapter of love, you see that there are people that are giving ever, everything they have to the poor. Uh, you're seeing that there's people that are uh, giving their bodies to be burned. And Paul says that it is possible to have all these gifts and all these skills and all this commitment, and yet it means nothing if we do not have the gifts of this, or the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Without uh, how many times it say, uh, it profiteth me nothing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. At times in the Bible, we come across men like Samson who have great gifts but yet are very shallow in character. We should beware of this in ourselves too. Let's not depend, let's not make synonymous our gifts and our fruit. Because we can, we, we can be gifted people and we can serve a lot and do a lot and yet have no fruit of the Spirit in our lives and that's so important. Uh, we, uh, Samson uh, made some serious mistakes in his life by not putting God first and uh, uh, trusting in himself too much. Well, let's continue the story here. In between the jawbone incident and the Gaza gate incident, Samuel rules about tw Samson you rules about 20 years. Now we come to his undoing when we meet a lady called Delilah. Delilah, how many of you know someone called Delilah? Yeah, she's not a very popular name. I think we have one back there, so... There's not a very popular name for good reason. The Delilah, the name means feeble. And Delilah was a gold digger. There's no better way to put it than that. Uh, the Philistine leaders approached Delilah and they offered her money if she could see wherein his great strength lieth. Now the first question we read it in our text is ridiculously obvious. And Delilah said unto Samson, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength lieth, and wherewith thou mightest be bound to afflict thee. Afflict thee comes from an original word that means literally to be put down. So, hey, Sam Sam, sweetie, tell me how I could tie you up so that I could, so that you could be put down. Hypothetical question, Sam Sam. I mean, this is a, the most, the oddest scene in Scripture. And, and stay with me because it gets worse. This sounds like a legit question, doesn't it? Surely Samson's not so thick headed that he doesn't get a little suspicious. But he doesn't run yet. Instead, he lies to her. He says, if you tie me up with seven green widths, that's pliant twigs, I'll be weak as any other man. So what do you think she does? She ties him up. She hides men in a room. And then she ties him up while he's sleeping, evidently. And then she goes, oh no, Samson, the Philistines be upon you. And so they, he wakes up. They rush out to take him. He laughs and snaps those twigs like nothing and uh, gives them a Bruce... Uh, Bruce Lee whipped down, all right? Now, we can guess that uh, this, is, this is the next amazing thing. Look at verse number 10. After that happens, the Bible says, and Delilah said unto Samson, that's an amazing line. Why are you still there, Samson? You, how could Delilah talk to Samson? Wouldn't you be long gone? I just told you the secret to my strength. You did what I said would happen, although I was lying. You called all the Philistines, you betrayed me, and he's still hanging out at her house. She says to Samson. Now, why does Samson hang around? His motives are harder to figure out than Delilah's. We see Delilah's motives. Why did Samson keep hanging around? We can guess that he has an overconfident love of danger. It's possible that he has become as hooked on danger as he is on loose women. Uh, but he cannot be in any doubt as to what Delilah is up to. Twice she complains, you have mocked me, not telling me the truth. 
Twice he lies to her in response. Bind me with new ropes. He said, weave the uh, seven locks of my hair. Each time he laughs as he tears himself free and gives them the beating they so richly deserve. Now, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Look at verse number 16. And it came to pass, it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death. Urged him. The Hebrew word translated urged him is mucho nagging. All right. All right, I'm making that up. But that's what's going on here. She is mucho nagging him. How can you say I love you? You keep lying to me. You won't tell me the truth. I mean, would I ever use it against you? What have I ever done to make you not trust me? These are what she's saying to him. Keeps on begging him. This is typical, by the way, of destructive relationships. Samson and Delilah are an extreme case of using one another instead of serving one another. Doubtless in this relationship, there's a lot of passion, but it was all done out of a motive of self-gratification. Samson is using Delilah for sexual favors, probably the thrill of danger. She's using him to get fortune and fame. Finally, he tells her the truth. Delilah, now knowing the truth, sends for her paymasters. Here is what I don't get. <laughs> I just, I've read this. You've read it too. We have all are confused. He has told her three times, do such and such, and I'll be weak. Three times out of three, she has done such and such, and of course failed. Now, here he tells her the truth. So what should he do now? Run like a striped ape, amen? Run, get out of there. No, this genius goes to sleep on her lap. It's like he's serving his head up to her. Here, I'll make it easy for you. And he goes to sleep on her lap. She calls the Philistine lords and uh, says to them, this is the one. Get ready. This is the truth. He goes to sleep. She calls in the barber. And uh, then she has him basically shaved his head there, took the hair off. And then she says, Oh no, Samson, Philip, imagine that. The Philistines are upon thee. And the Bible says, look at verse number 20. Chapter 16. And he woke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. That's probably the saddest line in the Old Testament. He wist not that the Lord was departed from him. All right. We get to the crux of our message now. We know that. He didn't know the Lord has departed from him. But I have a question for you. Did he know? This is important. Did he know he got a haircut? That's the important question right here. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But this is incredibly important for us to understand this question. Did he know that he got a haircut? In fact, this question is so important I'm willing to embarrass myself today just to make a point. You might forget some of the things I say. You're not going to forget this object lesson. Okay? You laugh. Brother West is jealous because he can't grow hair like this anymore. But as a standard, let's consider Absalom. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 14, 26, every year they cut his hair, they weighed it, and it weighed 200 shekels. That's six pounds. 
Here is Samson. He has gotten a haircut. My question again, does this is nothing compared to what Samson had. And is it, can we all agree, so I can take this wretched thing off, can we all agree Samson knew instantly he had gotten a haircut? Can we all agree with that? Okay, thank you. Whew. Honey, you can have that back after we're done with today. The second he woke up, he knew he got a haircut. That's why he says to himself in verse number 20, I will go out as at other times. What other times? The other times she did what she said she'd do. I'll go out at other times and shake myself. This is, why is this so important? He assumed his strength would still be there, even though his hair was gone. Uh, and why not? He had been slowly breaking his Nazarite vow over a period of time. He hasn't taken God seriously. The key phrase, I will go out as other times before, he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. Why? Because he did not really believe that his hair or his Nazarite vow was the source of his strength anyway. He had come to believe that his strength was simply his. It's me. I'm Samson. That's what he thought. I don't need God. And uh, that no matter what he did or how he lived, he would not lose it. His self-deception was not just psychological, it was theological. He was unable to see just how dependent he was on God's grace. He had come to see his strength, listen friends, as an inalienable right, not a gift of God's grace on his life. And so, he didn't think it was gone. Now, let me clarify, the power was not in his hair. The, the, the hair represented, uh, the power was represented in his hair because that represented his dedication to God. That is what made him unique. That's what made him peculiar. The Philistines thought he must do something to keep himself strong. Samson said, I don't have to do anything to keep myself strong. Uh, that's who I am. It's all me. But God's power depends on internal conditions. It depends on a heart relationship. Can I remind you when Jesus sent out His disciples and He said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that the power of the Holy Spirit would come down upon them, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come down upon you. Uh, what is that power? It's the power of knowing that what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20 when He said, I am with you always. That's the power when He's with us. But Samson didn't know God had left. God had left the building. So what mattered was not Samson's hair had been cut but the fact that God left him. It was when Samson began to forget his covenant, his relationship with God. Perhaps a line was crossed when Delilah's love mattered to him more than God's love did. Friend, listen to me. When your love for the world exceeds your love for God, your power will be gone. Uh, when you operate outside your uniqueness, your dedication, then your power is gone. Because that power does not come from you anyway. Like Samson, our set-apartness, our uniqueness, our peculiarity gives us access to the power of God. Can I tell you today, friend, Nazarite people, there's no Nazarite people in this crowd today, but there are set-apart people. God still calls people to be peculiar. He tells us in, uh, in 1 Peter 2.9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, uh, who, for, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Every believer today has the Spirit of God within them. God now calls on us in Romans 13, 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. We are to put on Christ and to shun the flesh. 
We are to be different. We are to live holy lives. We are not to allow ourselves to be molded into the shape of the world. Uh, we're set apart. Psalm chapter 4, verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Let me tell you, friend, when you lose that uniqueness, when you lose that separation, that set-apartness in your life, then you lose your power. Uh, you see, the power of God is within you. You can suppress it with your own perceived strength, like Samson did. It's all me. I'm doing everything. Or you can unleash it by recognizing your own weakness and depending on Him. God says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My strength is made perfect in weakness. Amen? What a blessing. It is not our weakness, therefore, that limits God. It is our perceived strength that limits Him. When we think we can handle it on our own. Well, what happened next? Samson became a slave. They put out his eyes. He was trotted out in front of the Philistines for sport. But in verse number 22, it says, Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again. After that, he was shaved. And of course it did. That's what hair does. Why is that recorded? Duh! His hair began to grow again. Uh, the point is, the Philistines let his hair grow back. They must have concluded that once it was gone, Samson was no longer a Nazarite. But Samson's strength, listen to me, friend, Samson's strength did not come uh, from the vows he made. It came from the God he made the vows to. And uh, God can give him that strength back just as he took it away from him. When he lost what he lost in his life because of sin... He gains back by repentance. He in his broken state is getting right with God. When in verse 28, he, Samson called unto the Lord, Oh Lord God, remember me. I pray thee and strengthen me. This is when strength, Samson's strength returns for the, perhaps the first time he is exercising faith. That's a very different Samson than the one that presumed on his own strength. The Bible says he put his hands against two pillars and then he prayed this prayer. Look with me at verse number 30. Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. The house had a lot of people in it. Samson had killed a lot of people already. This was a big crowd. And he wiped them all out. Now in some ways, Samson's end is a picture of Jesus' death. Samson and Jesus were both betrayed by someone they had act, that had acted as a friend. With Samson it was Delilah, with Delilah, with Jesus it was Judas. Both were handed over to Gentile oppressors. Both were tortured and put on public display to be mocked. Both died with their arms outstretched. Both appeared completely defeated by their enemies. Yet both in death crushed their enemy in the end. Samson the Philistines... Jesus Christ, the ultimate enemy, Satan. Samson brought the temple crashing down around the false Philistine god Dagon, destroying his spiritual power. On the cross, Jesus brought the power of Satan to nothing, disarming him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, uh, triumphing over them in it. He took away the penalty for our idolatry, which is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Satan now can no longer prosecute God's people, praise the Lord, because of the work that was done on the cross. He took away that penalty. And He took away sin's power in our lives, giving us the Spirit's power 
to change our lives. Hallelujah. What a blessing. We have in Samson more than any other judge in Judges a pattern of victorious defeat. Rejected, beaten, chained. He was under an avalanche of enemies. Samson triumphed. God delivered His people through the victorious defeat of one Savior. David Jackman says this, the Samson story begins with a strong man who became weak, but it ends with a weak man who is stronger than he ever was before. That is the gospel in a nutshell, my friend. Jesus became weak to become strong. But there is, of course, oh, and this is wonderful, there's, of course, one big difference between the picture of Samson and the picture of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible tells us that when Samson died, he was buried and put in the ground. But when Jesus died, it was not the end, it was only the beginning. And that uh, he can forever, ever empower us to serve him the way he did Samson. What a blessing it is to know that his story has only just begun. That's the story of Samson, the reason for our power. The reason that we have power in our life, if we do, to witness to people, to live righteously, to say no to sin, to overcome addiction. If we have any of that power, it does not come from within us. It comes from Him and works through us. Can I tell you today, friend, that probably the worst tragedy for us in our Christian lives is what it was for Israel in their life when the power was gone and they didn't even miss it. In Samson's life, the power was gone and he didn't even know it. The power of God was gone out of his life. He didn't even realize it. There's that old story of how to boil a frog. You ever heard that story? You put a frog in cold water, put it over the stove, and bring the temperature up slowly. If you, if you just throw him in boiling water, he'll screech and jump out. You put him in cool water and gradually turn the heat up. And you can boil that frog right to death. It's kind of how it is with us, too. If you uh, put us in, in the middle of desperate wickedness, of course, we'll notice immediately, but you allow, as our society changes and as we accept more and more and we watch worse and worse movies and we watch worse and worse television and we hang around the wrong crowd and we see we become desensitized to evil. And soon the power of God is gone and we don't even know it. Worse yet, the power of God is gone and we don't even miss it. I'm asking you today, friend, is the power of God working in and through your life? He's not so interested in what you can do for Him. He's interested in what He can do through you by operating His power in your life. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I have a question for you today, dear Christian. Do you have power? Do you have power? Are you able to say no to sin? Are you able to say yes to opportunities of serving Him? When it comes time to go to church and your flesh says no and your spirit says yes, do you have the power to listen to the spirit and say no to the flesh? Do you have power? Say, preacher, I used to. I used to have power. Friend, you can get that back again by doing just what Samson did. Repenting and asking God for it back. And guess what God did for Samson? He'll do for you. He gave it back by him asking for it and repenting. Let's uh, have everybody stand as she begins to play. I don't know how this message spoke to you, but uh, heads bowed, eyes closed. Nobody's looking around. If God's put his finger on your heart, would you let him deal with you at the altar this morning? Oh, friends, we need the power of God. Oh, how we need the power.